how is it going to be able to, to show that in a quick hit kind of fashion? And then the second issue is that if I went and did that, I would immediately put him on the defensive. And if he goes on the defensive, we exchange a few words, he walks out the door and he never comes back. And the real goal I had in inviting him to that very first dinner, it wasn't to convince him of something. I wasn't bringing him there to, to tell him how, how bad he was or something, but was to try to open a channel of communication in the hopes that there might be an opportunity to form some kind of a human connection, which under ordinary circumstances, given our respective ideologies, would probably be impossible. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Many people talk about responding to threats or people they disagree with with empathy, compassion, treating everyone with respect. In practice, I see a lot of people doing the opposite. They don't feel, I'm right, you're wrong. They feel, I understand reality, you don't. I have to teach you. Or often they feel they have to force them. On the environment, nearly all environmentalists, at least that I come across, they try to convince people who disagree with them through lecture, facts, figures, charts, things like that. When that doesn't work, they resort to shame, guilt, eventually disengaging with the actual person and trying to outpower them through legislation. Matthew Stevenson, my guest today for our second episode, he did the opposite. He practiced what many preach, and it worked. In our first episode, which I recommend listening to first, he shared how he worked and his mindset. The more I heard, the more fascinating I found it. More to the point, the more practical and effective I found it. The word convince, by the way, comes from the root vince, as in vanquish, to defeat. Attempts to convince generally provoke debate. After all, the person was already right in their own mind before you talk to them, and that's the playing field that they judge things on, their mind, not yours. Maybe you're wrong. If you aren't open to being wrong, why should they be? When was the last time someone defeated or vanquished you and you said, okay, now I agree with you and I'll follow you because you beat me? I invited Matthew back because he shared how to do what many of us talk about and no great historical figures practiced, but few of us know people on the street role models we can follow. Here he is in more depth than last time. Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Matthew Stevenson. Matt, how are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm very good. And I'm, I'm smiling because we were talking just before I started hitting record and we were talking about influence. And I was talking about how lots of people in the area of the environment, they lead with numbers and facts and figures. And I said, you could have done that with Derek. And you're like, I couldn't have. And what were you, can you go on with what you're saying? Do you think it might be helpful for those who didn't hear the first episode to give a bit of an introduction onto who Derek is? Yeah. So um, who's Derek and how do you guys know each other? And why did I hear about you? Why did the world hear about you guys? Sure. So my name is Matt Stevenson. I went to a small liberal arts school in Florida. I'm originally from Florida. And while I was there, I'm also an Orthodox Jew. When I was there at the school, a, uh, another student at the school was more or less the heir apparent to the white nationalist movement. His father had been the head of the Klan for a number of years, had resigned from the Klan largely because he felt, I think, that it was ineffectual, um, but was went on to form what's it called Stormfront, uh, which was, and I think continues to be, a very prominent uh, white nationalist website. And the son was more or less following in his father's footsteps. When I found, and, and I should add, at the school, the son was keeping 
something was Derek. There was keeping this identity a secret. So even though I knew Derek, I had absolutely no idea about this part of his life or this part of his his personality or background. And since arriving at the school, I had been hosting weekly dinners for Shabbat, the Sabbath, every Friday night to whomever wished to come, Jewish, not Jewish, observant, atheist, whatever. And when I learned of Derek's identity through a process, which we went into, I think, in the first episode, I invited Derek to come to one of those dinners. Derek came and kept going back. And uh, over process, it lasted for about two years of coming not only week after week though there, but uh, interacting with myself and with some other people who we met at those dinners. Eventually, Derek uh, left the white nationalist movement and is now uh, very passionately fighting against the cause he once espoused. How much of those two years together was he's just some guy named Derek? And how much of it was he's the heir apparent to the white nationalists? No, those two years were entirely he is the heir. There was probably a one-year period before that where he was a guy named Derek, who I watched a movie with once, and we traded notes in preparation for a class on Norman history once. I mean, we had some interactions. He lived downstairs for me in the dormitories, and so we we really actually got to know each other because he plays guitar and is pretty good at it, actually. You know, he's able to get paying gigs at bars and restaurants and things like that, and he liked to play old country and western songs, and I like to sing along poorly to those songs. And so he would sit in sort of common areas in the dormitories and play. And I would go and sit with him and sing along and and hang out. And that was more or less how we got to know each other. But at no time did I suspect his uh, background or views that count very separately. When it came out, what was the response of, was there a typical response or what were some of the responses of others? What was the response of you? Well, I'm not sure there's a typical response because I'm not sure it's a typical situation. Yeah. These things don't happen every day for better or for worse, probably for better. And um, the reactions varied and I would hate to paint everyone with a broad brush, but in general, from what I could perceive, there was a torrent of discomfort and rage directed against Derek, bearing in mind that this is a school that really prided itself on being inclusive, progressive, very forward-thinking on many issues, race and ethnicity being you know, amongst the foremost of those issues, and to think that the someone who was going to be leading the charge against those issues was being educated in the same institution and had been being educated in those institutions alongside them without them even realizing it for, at that point, about a year, uh, was a pretty shocking thing. So people were pretty upset. They canceled classes briefly to have a, they called the teach-in. There is a book called Rising Out of Hatred, which details some of the reactions in, in greater detail than I can recall from memory. And that's a, a book by Eli Saslow, which I uh, definitely recommend. But overall, the reaction was quite negative. Now, is it fair for me to, as I listen to this, not equate things that don't ought not to be equated, but to look at how people are responding to your situation, to how people to respond to what they would call climate deniers. I mean, this is the the frame that I'm listening to what you're talking about in is 
a lot of people look at people they disagree with and they come back with rage and so forth. And how do we influence people that we disagree with or be influenced by them, depending on you know where we are and how right we think we are, how much we learn? Is it fair for me to listen to you and your interaction with Derek and learn from that as to how I might interact with people I disagree with in other, in, in, or that we all, that different people, how people interact, I, I don't want to say just me, but how we respond to people that we feel like your beliefs are hurting the world, something like that. I think that there are a lot of commonalities with many situations far afield from white nationalism or racial bigotry or any other kind of bigotry. With that said, I do think that every situation is unique and has its own idiosyncrasies. And I, much like I didn't want to paint everything with a broad brush before, I think that people have to be cogent of the realities of the situation that confronts them. And I think it's very helpful for people to look at how different maybe situations have been approached and resolved in the past, maybe by others or by themselves, if, if, if that's applicable. And seeing a broad array of strategies and tactics may give some ideas for what might be applicable there. I fear, though, that if someone, it's like the old saying that to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And for some groups, for some, to choose my words wisely, for some people, it carries a certain traction to come out with a certain venom or fervor against those who might be seen as their ideological opponents. You mentioned climate deniers earlier, and you could probably extend that to anti-vaxxers or, or you could flip the coin and say vaxxers or I'm not sure exactly what terminology, I'm not sure what the terminology used uh-huh. by the other side is, but I'm sure they have some, I'm sure they have something clever. So I think that sort of bring this all full circle. I believe that you began this discussion with a question about facts and figures and why I didn't just rush in with facts and figures when I first learned about Derek's background. And the short answer... Actually, I want to frame it slightly different because I said you could have, but you said I couldn't have. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you can do a lot of things that are foolish, I guess. But, <laughs> uh-huh. but I thought it was just what it would have been ridiculous because Derek at that time was... I'm dating myself a little here, but he was... I'm going to say roughly 20 when he started attending these dinners. Mm -hmm. He had spent literally his entire life defending this kind of ideology, an ideology which virtually everyone else in the world, other than this one group, I mean, it's not one, literally one group as in the sense of an organization, but white nationalism is not that many people, but vast majority of Americans and people around the world think it's an abhorrent ideology. And so I wasn't going to be able to, I wasn't going to tell him that and give him some sort of epiphany. So I never saw it that way. And not only that, but people have been trying to argue with him and with his father and with his godfather, a guy named David Duke, uh, before that for, for quite a number of years. And I have not spent my entire life, certainly not up, up to that point, even now that I've spent some years speaking on these issues more publicly, and I've frankly, become a little bit more educated on them. But certainly then, I hadn't spent that kind of time amassing a base of knowledge to be able to counter. Because you can always come up with some sort of statistical point that sounds nice or that sounds 
as though it supports your cause. And I'm sure, and I'm not intimately familiar, let's say, with a climate denier cause, but you and I discussed a little bit last time that it's not like they don't make arguments. It's not as though they say, oh, no, the Earth is actually getting cooler or something. Maybe they do, but they, they, they oftentimes will try to make arguments based on statistics or other things. Derek had many statistical arguments that probably virtually all collapse if you know the underlying methodologies or other issues with the studies. But coming from where I was coming from, it wasn't going, I wasn't going to be able to, to show that in a quick hit, quick hit kind of fashion. And then the second issue is that if I went and did that, I would immediately put him on the defensive. And if he goes on the defensive, we exchange a few words, he walks out the door and he never comes back. And the real goal I had in inviting him to that very first dinner, it wasn't to convince him of something. I wasn't bringing him there to, to tell him how, how bad he was or something, but was to try to open a channel of communication in the hopes that there might be an opportunity to form some kind of a human connection, which under ordinary circumstances, given our respective ideologies, would probably be impossible. Yeah, I want to echo that um, he would win in his own mind in any debate. Yes. And that's the, that's the playing field if you're trying to influence someone is their hearts, their minds. He's the one you're trying to convince. So, yeah. you know, everyone else has pretty much agreed with me at this point. So. <laughs> and you, you, you sense that you would just walk into, into a debate in which he would win no matter what. And so what's the point in doing that? And maybe I would, and look, it's not to say that I wouldn't feel like I had won. It's not to say that both people can't walk away from a debate feeling that each of us has made wonderful points and, or that I've, you know, I've made wonderful points and that my opponent is an idiot and a racist and a fool. But if the goal is to, and if the goal is really just to stroke my own ego, then, then maybe that was the way to go. But if the goal was actually to maybe form some sort of, connection with Derek and maybe bring about a, I'm not saying bring about, but I'd say make an opening or opportunity for, for something more lasting to change. I don't know that that would be the best approach. And are you deliberately trying to relate this to environmental discussions or is that just a byproduct? Because what you're saying fits exactly into, I mean, most people have spent their entire lives living a lifestyle that pollutes and they want to sleep at night. And so they know why what they do is actually not so bad. Sure. And so they are going to, if I engage someone on facts and figures, then they're almost certainly going to win because they, they know already what's happening and they've already figured out how to justify it. Sure. I mean, I think that it's true that I think that there's two parts. The first is that going after someone in a debate, like you're describing you have to really be honest with yourself about what your objective is. If your objective is to convince that person of something, you may want to stop and ask yourself if you're really going down the right path and how many people have really been convinced through a similar approach. I'm not a, uh, you know, a great prognosticator, but they say that doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results is, is not a sign of, of great sanity. And I don't think it's any different here. The second thing I would say is that it is very important to, I'll say this, and then there's another point which is important to make. There may be an assumption that people are behaving rationally 
when many decisions people make are really not rational. There is a huge body of literature, whether it, which is basically called behavioral psychology. You know, the Diamond Kahneman and Torsky wrote uh, some very nice books about it. This thinking fast and slow. Thinking fast and slow. Influence is actually one of my favorite books by uh, Robert Cialdini, C I A L D I N I. And you read the book and you think to yourself before you read the book, wow, I'm such an enlightened being. Everything I'm doing, I'm so clever. And after you read the book, you more or less realize that you're just manipulated constantly. And the funny thing is, it's not like you stop being manipulated after you've read the book. You're manipulated just as much afterwards. You just notice it, but you're still manipulated. Noticing it doesn't stop. But the point being is that people behave in ways that that often maybe even justified publicly or to themselves as being logical, that are not really rooted necessarily in logics or facts and figures. They may try to explain it to themselves in that fashion, but that's not really why they're doing it. Now, there's one caveat I'd like to say, which is really to the first point. I mentioned going if you're going to, to debate, debate with someone expecting to convince them of something, maybe you should hold on to your horses. For some issues, though, it's important to recognize that there is, and this may apply more to the racial issue than to environmentalism, I'm not sure, but having someone speak up for people who are being trodden upon or otherwise oppressed, there's something for that, to be said for that. Even if it doesn't convince Derek, it may influence the broader discussion, right, in, in that particular case, right? So... Acknowledging what your goals are when you're going in, I think, is pretty important. Are you saying that after, or did you, before engaging him, after learning of his identity, did you formally say to yourself, these are my goals, or did that come out in the process? No, maybe a better way of expressing that would be to say that if I had decided to, let's say, march with a big sign, and it said, you know, some, some witty slogan, which I can't come up with right now, which is probably why you know there are people they call them witty, and in response to this being outed, and this is something something which is saying you know we support the people of color in this community, we support religious minorities in this community, we do not support white nationalism. Is that sign and that protest really designed to convince white nationalists that they're wrong? No, the pro- purpose is is to show the people of color and the religious minorities and other groups that may feel persecuted, that they are actually supported. And so it looks kind of similar, but the purpose is totally different. And so acknowledging those different purposes from the outset, I think, is important. I don't think many people get that because like in the the recent election, my dad was like, oh, we got to, you know, he's in Pennsylvania, swing state. And he would only talk to people he agreed with. Yeah. And I kept saying, you know, fine, I'm not going to stop you from talking with people you agree with, but that's not going to change a vote from someone else. Sure. I mean, if they're all going to vote anyway, you're not actually affecting any change. But I don't think he realized it's really just tightening up the group that you're in. But the net effect, and it's also polarizing, you know, moving the others away from you. So it's contributing to the systemic effect seems to me to, to increase polarization and decrease communication. It's very difficult for people to have conversations with people with whom they vehemently disagree, especially about those issues on which they vehemently disagree. It's worth pointing out that Derek and I did not discuss white nationalism for those two years. I mean, I wasn't easing him into it, right? I mean, it was really a goal of just 
that knowing where he had grown up, that he'd grown up in this environment with his father being a leader in the movement, his mother being a leader in the movement, his godfather, and so on, that whole circle, they, they weren't getting invited to a lot of Passover seders, if you get my drift. <laughs> but, uh, and I thought to myself, you know what? He graduates from college in a couple of years. He'll be enmeshed in that world, and he'll never have another opportunity like this ever again. So, so this was for him? From what I did, yes. But from what other students did, maybe not, right? There were students that protested, right? That like that canceled classes and did those things. And so when I said to you earlier that those things were not likely to convince Derek, it's absolutely true. They were not likely to convince Derek. But maybe they did serve a purpose in that maybe if you were a person of color on the campus and you felt that Derek's presence was threatening to you, that you felt comforted knowing that people on the campus were willing to put themselves out there as your allies, that they were standing up for you. Does that make sense? That not everyone necessarily has to come at the issue mm-hmm. from the same perspective towards, even if at the end of the day, we're all, we sort of have the same, you know, we're all like sort of opposed to white nationalism. We all kind of have the same perspective. Mm-hmm. We may have some nuances, but that was sort of the you know, circuitous way of, of making that point. I'm kind of curious about lots of things. I, I mean, we'll run out of time before we exhaust all the things that I'd want to talk about. Did you ever go to Stormfront? Sure. What was it like? You can go there right now. I think it's still up. It's still there. And there's no, they don't get any advertising revenue, so don't feel bad. <laughs> I hope not. Otherwise, I'm just, you know, I'm not trying to support, I'm not trying to ad- advertise for Stormfront. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't go to Stormfront. That's maybe my, my. Well, I, I mean, in preparing for our first conversation, I went there and I had an odd experience that I saw some people. Yes, that, that can describe a lot of things on that <laughs> website, to be honest. What I, what I saw, and I don't remember the details because I've, des- I've described this to some people, and I wasn't intending to bring this up with you, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, that I saw some people asking questions of the sort of like, I don't remember the details, but it was like, if we're supposed to have quotas, you know, this is how they would put it, you know, in, in business for an, an affirmative action, why don't we have that for the NFL or for the NBA? And what I saw was at least one dialogue where someone it seemed like there was some neophyte and there was someone experienced and the, the experienced person was kind of walking through and like saying, here's why this, and like, it was a supportive tone. It was a welcoming tone. Sure. And it was a helpful tone. And what struck me was that the person who, the neophyte was like, that sounds reasonable. That sounds reasonable. And it was, it was a course of many conversations. And it, what hit me was that I'm not aware of a place where if I feel like if I ask a question like that, I'll get viewed as like, you ignoramus, like, how can you not know this? I don't know where I've seen the question answered helpfully, supportively from the perspective of the opposite of white nationalism. Interesting question. The short answer is that I don't know if there is, I don't know if I had a place for that particular kind of question. I think that one thing that's useful to bear in mind and this is, I think, broadly applicable. I'm going to talk about it in the context of white nationalism, but I think it is very generalizable, is that many of these groups have tremendous camaraderie because there's a certain sense of us versus them, right? It's easy for people in our positions to characterize the people who are posting on Stormfront as archetypal villains, but that's not the way they see themselves. 
they see themselves as heroes. I mean, no one views themselves as the villain. And by virtue of the fact that there are so many of us and so few of them, and they're geographically dispersed by and large across the country and across the globe, they feel a really strong connection to each other and a real sense of community. And so you ask, why was there a supportive tone? Well, because I think that it probably is a very support, can probably be a very supportive place for people like that. And frankly, it's also a great way to recruit people. You attract more flies with honey, as they say, than with vinegar. And so I think that, and there was a, a very interesting book published. I, I think it was just, I think it was already published. It was, I think it was while I was, I, I'm out of state from where I usually live due to COVID, but uh, by uh, Obama's former Surgeon General about um, communities and how basically people choose communities and find communities. And the thesis of this book is that there's an epidemic of loneliness in America and probably in the world, and that some solutions to that are positive, obviously, and some are, are less positive. And we want to find ways to push. I actually, having not read the book, I probably shouldn't say what the book says, but mm-hmm. I, I was interviewed for the book, so that's why I have some authority. But read the book, and uh, these communities do have that big advantage. And this sort of brings me back maybe to my point I was making before about logic versus underlying more real causes. I think that for many people who are in groups affiliated with white nationalism, and it's probably true of groups affiliated with anti-vaxxers or, or climate deniers or, or things like that as well, to the extent that they can find a real sense of community someplace, people will try very hard to justify remaining because why would you want to give up a community to which you feel very strongly connected, right? I mean, the, I'm sure the vast majority of the activities are, are you know, you feel very positive about yourself and what you're doing. Even though on a grander scale, looking from the outside in, it looks like what they're doing is very harmful and probably is very harmful. Do you think in his life, were you one of the first people outside of that community to show him support and community and, and listen? I'm not sure what you mean by that exactly, because I did not discuss white nationalism with Derek until after he had left white nationalism publicly, because I was not sure at what, you know, early on, it was, as I mentioned, that if I had brought it up, I was afraid defenses would go up and then the whole bridge building exercise would be ruined. After two years, to be honest, could I have brought it up pretty safely? Yes. But after two years, it's a little awkward to bring something like that up. Even so, I mean, you knew, he knew, you knew that he knew, he knew that you knew. Oh, yes, yes. We all knew, yes. Everyone knew everything. We just did, It was an 800-pound gorilla in the room, so to speak. So I guess that everyone, I'm guessing, and I, I'm asking because I don't know, that most people would, that would be, they would address the, the, the elephant in the room. They would get into arguments with him, and, but you didn't. And, and were you one of the first who was like, who are you, man? You're such some dude, okay. And, you know, let's play guitar and sing however badly. Your words, not mine. <laughs> I, think that, I think that it's a good question. It's a question that I have to guess at a little bit, because obviously it's a question about someone else's life, right? Mm-hmm. I think that his, you know, basically before college, he'd been able to keep those spheres of his life separate. In other words, he'd have a musical life and a white nationalist life. 
And it wasn't that the musical life was playing neo-Nazi music. He was playing whatever kind of music. And he was playing in normal places and, you know, probably paid gigs playing in those places. But the people who he knew and some of the people who he knew from those venues did know, I think, about his background, but kind of dismissed it as being just like a quirk or just like a weird thing. Bear, bear in mind also that, you know, when I was inviting him to these dinners, he was 20. At some point, you know, he was 16 and 15 and 14. And do you blame the parents or the child? At some point, the waters become a little bit murky. Mm-hmm. But was I the only one? I don't know that I said I was the only one, but I was, I don't know if I was the only one. Well, even if not you personally, but this, this context of, I'm guessing that people who knew about his background and didn't like it would provoke defense. It, it's difficult to hold your tongue, right? I mean, and look, yeah. as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I am identifiably Jewish. I wear kippah, which is the little small hat. I have been targeted in a number of anti-Semitic attacks over the years, predominantly in Europe, although some in the United States. As from the time I was 12, in Europe was the first one I can really remember when I was chased around the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy or the square around it, they call it Square of Miracles, while being spat on by a group of teenagers. When you're 12, I remember exactly how old they were. It's hard to say because when you're 12, everyone looks pretty big. To as recently as uh, probably a month or so before I left Baltimore, while being followed around with a group of uh, people on a bullhorn screaming at me that I was going to be put into slaves and chains and sold into slavery, uh, and that I was an imposter Jew, and so on. So the realities of anti-Semitism are not lost on me. I am not uh, naive. At the same time, I don't think that making myself feel good by yelling at a Nazi or punching a Nazi, to use the current catchphrase, does any good in the long run, to my, for myself or for the cause. And so were there times where it might have been difficult to not say anything? Absolutely. And it wasn't at the beginning. At the beginning, it wasn't difficult because you figure this guy's been involved in this for so many years. If someone had been involved in uh, climate denying for 20, their whole life and their parents were the leading figures in that world, and they come to one meeting of your group, you were not going to be surprised they didn't have a sudden epiphany of the road to Damascus moment, if I can mix metaphors. But after a year, a year and a half, he's coming to my apartment every week. I'm paying for all the food. <laughs> he's, you know, he's, it's not just by that point, it's not just Friday night, but he's coming over all the time and he's spending a lot of time with me. And not only that, but his activities with Stormfront were not declining, but were increasing. So you think to yourself, am I doing the right thing? When I set out, I set out with, I think, a pretty good agenda. You know, in other words, as far as agendas go, I set out with, with a good intention, right? But after a year, year and a half, it became very frustrating and it became very difficult to continue and to see the project such as it was through, through its completion. I, I say project sort of in, in quotes, not that it was a project, but just to, to see how far it could go. And, that's really where the challenge is. It's not at the beginning. It's in the keeping it going. 
when the light at the end of the tunnel seemed to be getting more and more distant, if not, if not invisible? Because it just seems as though despite your best efforts, nothing's helping and nothing is working. Imagine if a person, God forbid, had an illness and at first thinks maybe there's some medicine that will help with the illness. And so there's a certain amount of hope. And after a little while, it seems as though that medicine is not working. And they try a second medicine and then that medicine is not working. And the doctor is not really sure if there's any other medicines. At some point, the person feels as though he's not really sure what else to do. So I frankly, I prayed a lot about it. And I, I really asked, and what I do, is what I'm doing the right thing? Because it's also worth mentioning that I also had a fear that maybe I was being used. Maybe I was being used by Derek because these groups, whether or not you know it, are very clever and have rebranded themselves very effectively, at least as far as these things go, that they're not about hate, but rather about heritage. And that they are not, let's say, anti-Black or anti-Jewish or anti-anything. They're just pro-white, right? Why, why can't you have the, why can you have the NAACP and not an equivalent organization for, for white people? Now, I think that for most Americans, the notion that you can equate the Klan with the NAACP is, you know, a little absurd. But now there are pictures of Derek and me over a period of, you know, a year, year and a half. Maybe go out and say, you know, look, here's proof that I'm not an anti-Semite. My good friend is Jewish. See? So maybe I was being used. So that was a thought that crossed my mind. And you have to weigh these Pros and cons. That's why I mentioned that every situation is idiosyncratic. And it's not like you can slap a one-size-fits-all approach onto anything. Because there are situations that will demand one approach, and some situations will demand another. But in this particular case, I decided that it was worth, I said to myself, look, if I'm wrong, sort of decision tree. You know, what happens if I'm right? What happens if I'm, you know, if it works out, then wonderful and if not you know and frankly it was going to graduate in six months or whatever anyway so it wasn't like it was going to be 20 more years right i mean there was a truncation point which probably helped and uh i felt like the benefits outweighed the risks and so i continued but that was the real challenging point so you motivated yourself to continue figuring the worst possible outcome would be I guess there could be decades of your picture being showed around as the patsy. And I'm guessing you discounted that relative and you, you factored that in relative to the possibility of what actually did happen or, and many other possible outcomes. I mean, look, I, it's not so much necessarily that I care about my picture. I mean, what happens to me in these things is not that significant, but if it would, such a picture might help these groups to actually recruit people. I mean, these actually might be a recruiting tool. I mean, I, these are not, um, Groups that are satisfied with their current levels of membership, they, if you ever have a chance, there's a, second, there's a book about the second coming of the Ku Klux Klan. It talks about how Klan originally existed in one form in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, the American Civil War, those were international, and um, basically died out, more or less. I mean, it was very, very, you know, for all intents and purposes, dead. And it was revitalized. And so 
the bigger concern was doing anything which would give groups like that a recruiting tool. wasn't wasn't a concern about me being labeled, uh, you know, a friend of the clan. There were personal consequences to me from the very beginning. I mean, there were people. I mentioned these dinners. There were many people who had been coming to these dinners since I had started doing them, who did not like the idea of Derek coming, and who told me pretty much flat out. I of course warned them before I invited him. Surprise! surprise. (laughs) So I I, I told him, look, he's coming. And as he had before, it is, no, yeah, he had never come before. He'd never come to these dinners before. I knew him from playing guitar, but he'd never come to these dinners before. Okay. And those, that, those were the days, of course, bef- you know, when the, the guitar was before we knew about his background. So you could be forgiven for those mistakes. But now it was, now it was were real times. And I told people not to confront him about his views. This was not an ambush. And a lot of people basically, I mean, I say a lot of people, it wasn't that many people, but proportionally a lot said uh, that it was basically them or him, that they was just going to stop, stop coming and wanted nothing to do with it if, if he was going to be there. So I had to make a decision whether a large group of friends, people, a group I'd built up over whatever, a year, a couple of years, was going to disintegrate because of this or not. So I had to make a decision along those lines much earlier, and that was a much easier decision to make because the only real risk there was to me and you know, what's the big difference? So the, the internal decision is, it's more fraught, you know, it's easy to look at it from the outside and think, oh, well, how else could it have played out? But it sounds like there's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of um, how it affects every other part of your life. I mean, on a scale, like how easy, how hard was it in the moment at different, or what was the, at the peak difficulty? How difficult was it? Like everything, I suppose, it's a matter of, uh, what you're comparing it to, it got more difficult as time went on. And then, so I would say that at the very beginning, it was very easy. Despite the issues that maybe I had with some people early on, it was still pretty easy because I felt pretty strongly that what I was doing was the right thing. The intensity of the challenge grew exponentially, I would say, over the course of the next couple of years. And then there were some comments that were made by Derek that made it seem as though he was a little bit less extreme, but I still didn't really know where he stood. And then he finally, just very public, in a very public way, without any warning to me or anything, renounced it all. And so then it was, you know, then you felt pretty good. So <laughs> then you felt fine. <laughs> so jumping ahead to now and, and recent years, you could make a big deal out of it. You could keep it kind of quiet. It seems to me that you're, when you're having conversations like this one and, or I think Colbert and Stewart are like, you can make it as big as you wanted, or you could keep it as small as you wanted. How do you decide how you talk about it now? So basically, Derek renounced white nationalism in 2013. So that gives you some sense of how much time has passed since then. And we really had no idea anyone would be interested in this little uh, story for a few years after that. There was a journalist from the Washington Post named Eli Saslaw, who I mentioned earlier. He wrote a book about this later, but he first wrote an article about this for the Post uh, in October or November of 16, I think. And um, that was well-received and people seemed to want to talk us to speak. So we've uh, received... I got a lot of invitations to speak at different organizations. 
So as far as how much, how much to do or what to do, there is a emotional drain, especially for Derek. As you might imagine, Derek is in more demand than I am, but uh, there is uh, also a more emotional drain on Derek when he does these things because they're dredging up his family and so on. Now it's not, not difficult to see how, how that could be uh, difficult emotionally. So I think that um, the question is sort of uh, balancing, like you have an objective, much like we were discussing before, right? You have an objective, which is, I think we'd both like to reduce the influence of white nationalism in the world. At the same time, I have a day job. He has a day job. We both sometimes, you know, are aware, have to be aware of our emotional health and not getting burnt out. And so sort of play the long game. So I think that you have to pick your spots. And usually that means speaking to organizations that represent causes that matter to us. So for example, um, Derek spoke at the annual gala for an organization called Facing History and Ourselves. I should say, I say Derek, but also uh, growing Alison Gornick, who um, was my roommate at the time and is now Derek's wife. So that's another angle. Oh, sub story. They, yeah. See, <laughs> plot twist. Slip that in at the end. And um, so they are an organization which promotes teaching history, not from a position of just facts and figures just memorizing dates and you know, the battle of such and such was on this date. And then this King died on this date, but you're either thinking about things from a reflective and reflective perspective in the sense that what were people at that time and place thinking and feeling, what would have caused a person to behave in such a fashion? Like, for example, it's very easy. And I sort of alluded to this earlier. Everyone thinks uh, of themselves as, 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 as a hero or as a good guy for the most part. And certainly no one thinks of themselves as being a villain. And so when you look back at segregation times in the South, not even slavery times, but segregation times, which were times, you know, within the lifetime of my grandparents, what caused people to behave towards other human beings in a way that made those, you know, it was basically totally deprived those people of their humanity. Was it because the people who are perpetrating those actions were fundamentally different than you and I, or was it something else? Because I think when you start going down the road of saying that people do bad things because they're bad people, it gives us an easy out because we are not bad people. And so we will of course never do bad things. If people who have done bad things are actually very similar to you and me, then we may have to ask ourselves how people who go to church every Sunday and who are very active in their communities and who are married and love their kids can also make up the majority of the ranks of the Nazi party. I mean, it's no contradiction to think that you can be a loving family man and also be capable of war crimes. How can a human being be capable of these two opposite, seemingly opposite ends of, uh, of behavior it's a real question that needs to be explored and people need to meditate on. And that's what the class, this class does. Well, it really trains teachers in history and some other subjects as well to, uh, in, in basically in how to incorporate that kind of thinking into their subjects and when, when they're teaching it. The thinking and feeling, I would think, hearts and minds, it feels like. Yeah, so in other words, putting the student in that position. You know, what if you're a person in this community, in this, in this time, when these things are 
really the reality. You know, it's not just a figment of your imagination. These are the, this is the facts on the ground. This is what will happen to you if this, if you do this, this is what will likely happen if you do why, you know, what do you do? And you can often see, you know, you can sort of start to see a little bit, maybe just a little bit, probably we'll never see entirely through the eyes of someone living, breathing at a time when I wasn't even born yet. But at least I can start to appreciate the kind of thoughts that were going through them. And then maybe I can start to wonder, are similar thoughts ever going through my mind now? And maybe I have, just like they probably had blind spots. Like I don't think the people who are supporting segregation in the South often thought themselves as being, like I said, they thought they were doing absolutely the right thing. They had clearly a blind spot, let's say, in their moral compass. In what areas of my own life do I have a blind spot in my moral compass? Yeah, I think empathy is one of the great challenges. If what we're talking about is empathizing with people and, and feeling what they feel and seeing the world through their perspective. Sure. It's very uncomfortable when it's someone that we disagree with and think is wrong, especially if we think that they're morally wrong. Absolutely. And this is one reason why we feel so good when we shout at our ideological opponents or when we threaten violence against our ideological opponents. I mentioned before that I have, for better or for worse, a long experience with anti-Semitism. The 16-year-olds or 17-year-olds who were chasing me around Italy, they were, I'm sure they didn't think what they were doing was so bad either. And so, you know, it, it's, not, it's not a... And, and I probably didn't stop to think about how I was feeling. And it, it was a crowded place, too. That's the other interesting thing about it. It's a square where there are lots of merchants selling uh, out of stalls, basically. You know, little different uh, goods. At least it was then. This is 20 years ago or something, so it may have changed. But there were half a dozen people chasing and zero people intervening. So, but I think that as soon as you start to view people and this is something that I find very disturbing when I sometimes I look at like let's say cable news and I find regardless of the channel the other side demonized in a way that it's not just that we disagree with them but that they are really evil they hate America they hate freedom and you know whatever whatever other you know sort of concepts we want to throw out there and once we do that suddenly it's almost like they're less than human. And in almost every genocide, it's an interesting thing where if you look at Hitler or look at all these other genocides that happened in Rwanda, et cetera, there is a routine process where people have to be dehumanized. I'm not saying that there's a genocide going on here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to exaggerate things. But there is a recurring process where it's much easier to behave badly towards people who we don't feel are fully human. In other words, to not empathize with people who we don't feel are fully human and are not really entitled as a result to human dignity. And I would counter that and say, no, everyone is human, whether or not we disagree with them, even on very serious issues. And this doesn't mean we have to agree with them on an issue to treat a person with human dignity. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. 
you'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. This is why I wanted you back. I could easily start another hour, and I realize we're running out of time now. But you say this, a lot of people say what you just said, and it falls, it sounds hollow because they haven't lived it. And, but you have, I mean, you went through that period of, of exponentially growing difficulty and I'd, I'd either want to start another hour or wrap up there. And I mean, I, I just want to thank you for sharing an experience that few people have. And I think had you not lived it, had you proposed it as a hypothetical, I think a lot of people would say that would never work. And I'm, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of it as thinking of, of there's a lot of rage of on in climate and environmental issues of people that and of like oh they they're idiots they you know they're killing us all or something like that and I mean people I you know I was on the, I've been on a couple of these uh, video things with very staunch Trump supporters and people write back and like how can you I'd lose my cool if I was in a situation like that how can you do that ah now that I think back is is our conversation before is is one of the things I mean it's, it's am I trying to Am I doing this for myself? Or am I doing this for some greater calling or greater mission? I don't know where I'm going with this. I, I feel a sense of gratitude. I'm trying to express that besides just saying thank you for sharing. No, absolutely. I'm more than happy to, to share. And I appreciate being invited on as a guest. I think it's so important and, and so critical. People view other human beings as human beings because of that. Just because of that. Because they're human beings. That's enough whether or not they have the same beliefs as me. Because the reality is, if you look through the history books, and both Derek and I are big fans of history. It was one of the topics we talked a lot about during that year and a half. We were avoiding that gorilla in the room or the elephant in the room. I'm not great at remembering <laughs> all the metaphors, whatever. Okay, one of but, but everyone who commits horrible crime, horrible does horrible things, has wonderful and beautiful explanations. There was a story of the reconquest of Spain, where the uh, people were reconquering it from the Muslims who had occupied it and lived in established kingdoms there and so on, the Catholics reconquering it. And they, this is probably an apocryphal story, and it probably didn't happen exactly this way in reality, but they come to the general and they say, well, we don't know. There are actually not only Muslims here, but also Jews and also Christians we're not sure how to separate the Christians who live here from the Jews and the Muslims. And so the general had a very clever idea. He says, kill them all and God will know his own. So people have beautiful explanations for all sorts of horrific behavior. And I think that the first step that you have to ask is, am I treating other people with human dignity? And if my behavior in some way contradicts that, I immediately have to take a step back and re really, really take it hard look at myself and what I'm doing. And then the next step is to ask myself, what am I looking to accomplish? And is the course that I have proposed really going to achieve that purpose? Is, is it even really aiming towards that purpose? Or maybe it's my own ego fooling me. Maybe it's my ego telling me, go do this because you'll be a, a hero to the cause. Even though in reality, you're not going to help the cause at all. You may just go viral on 
YouTube or something. So I, I think that it all starts and in many times ends with human dignity, with the notion, whether a person is religious or, or secular or, or somewhere in between, that we all share a common humanity. And that is a thread that is impossible to unwind. I'm going to leave it there. Matt, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Great to see you again and look forward to talking again soon. Would I have predicted when starting this podcast, this effort to bring leadership to sustainability, that I would talk about a white nationalist website, Stormfront, with an Orthodox Jew? I doubt it, but I find him one of the best role models for me. Most guests I think of as role models for listeners, experimenting, sharing environmental values most of us don't, acting on them, doing what almost no one has yet, so we can all learn from them and feel comfortable following them. With Matthew, he's doing what I endeavor to. It's emotionally incredibly hard in my experience when I feel I know I'm right or that I understand reality, but they don't. It's easy in times like that to end up condescending or sounding self-righteous because I feel self-righteous. It's hard then to conjure up humility, empathize, listen, and get to a place where they're right and I'm wrong to understand the playing field, where they're coming from. Leadership is about you have to go to where they are, not where you want them to be, not where you think they should be, not where you are, not where other people are, but where they are. So he's a role model for me. His strategy took a long time, but it worked, and the solution is enduring. Plus, he laughs and jokes about it. He didn't convince, vanquish, or win. He made a friend. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.